It is good to be gathered together with the saints to worship. And this morning we're gonna continue in our short series during this holiday season, during Advent. And I'm sure most of you realize 78 years ago today, just after 9.30 a.m., December 8th, 1941, a national radio broadcast of U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt went before a joint session of the U.S. Congress and begins with the following words. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. During that session, the president requested a declaration of war against Japan. Radios all over Washington State and the nation were turned on to his speech. In schools, the speech was broadcasted over loudspeakers. 21 minutes after the president spoke, the U.S. Senate voted 82-4-0 against to declare war. The declaration read, Joint resolution declaring that a state of war exists between the imperial government of Japan and the government and the people of the United States and making provisions to prosecute the same. Whereas the imperial government of Japan has committed unprovoked acts of war against the government and the people of the United States of America. Therefore, be it resolved by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that the state of war between the United States and the imperial government of Japan, which has thus been thrust upon the United States, is hereby formally declared. And the president is hereby authorized and directed to employ the entire naval and military forces of the United States and the resources of the government to carry on war against the imperial government of Japan and to bring the conflict to a successful termination. All the resources of the country are hereby pledged by the Congress of the United States. The action by Congress was in reaction to Japan's air bombing raids of the U.S. post at Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands the day before, and to the White House in Guam and in the wake in Midway Islands, that the total losses were eight battleships, three destroyers, three light cruisers, four auxiliary crafts, 188 planes, 2,403 deaths, 1,178 wounded. Our own Washington Governor Arthur B. Langley made the following statement shortly after the United States declared war. Your state government is prepared and ready to perform every defense task which has or will be assigned to it. The state of Washington is on the frontier of a great war. We do not know what the future holds in store for us. We do not know what trials we must go through or what sacrifices we will be called upon to make. We do know what is at stake. We know that our country, our liberties, and our very homes are threatened. We are individually and as a nation being called upon to make good our pledge of allegiance to flag and country. 78 years ago today, we declared war. Christmas is about a state of war. This is the theme we read in the Bible. When we read Genesis 3, we are entering a state of war. In fact, Mary, as she re recalls and recites her song in Luke 1, is better labeled a war hymn than a Christmas carol. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary has a villain in mind, and when she says this, it's not have yourself a merry little Christmas. 
This is war. There is an enemy and there's a victor. In Genesis 3, when Moses relates the story of the fall, he uses the word enmity, which talks about hatred, strife, hostility. It's a word of warfare. Christmas is not about peace and tranquility. Christmas is not about quietness and crackling fires and mistletoes and presents. Christmas is about war. There is an enemy. There's a villain. And there's a great, the greatest enemy, sin. Christmas is a statement of war and we need a victor. We need someone who can defeat sin and Satan. We need a mighty God. And the prophet Isaiah announces him, a baby, a child that will come. If you remember from last week, the people in Isaiah's day were in the midst of suffering and shame. If you look back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, you can see how dire the situation was. It says, and they looked to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust in the thick darkness. This is not a charming picture. Distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. This isn't enjoyable. Why? It was God's judgment on his people for the refusal to submit their lives to him. They were in full-blown apostasy. They had walked away from God. But God wouldn't let them wander away into destruction. He would send a rescuer. He would send a baby, a child. And everything changes with the birth of this child. And so Isaiah then in chapter 9 gives the names of this child, four titles for this coming king to, to show us who he is and what he will do. And he says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And last week we looked at the, the first Wonderful Counselor. He's supernaturally perfect, the divine son in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we can trust him. His counsel is perfect and sound. And this morning we're moving to the next title, Mighty God. It's helpful to know that in the Hebrew, unlike the English translation, the word for God is actually the first word. So we're going to look at that first, God and then mighty. So I want to read the text, and if you haven't already, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 and follow with me as I read. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with the, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Would you join me in as I pray? God, we thank you that you've brought us through another week away and now we've gathered with the saints for worship. God, we thank you for your word that guides us and reforms us and molds us into the image of your son, Jesus. And I ask that you would help your people here. Open their ears and soften their hearts and strengthen their resolve to leave this place to serve you with a mighty reliance upon your spirit. For your honor and glory, I pray. Amen. First is God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. This baby, this child that would be born to, to Mary, this man, Christ Jesus, he is God. This is a shocking sentence for millions in the world today. It is an extraordinary claim that this child will come to win the war on sin. For, for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There are two important phrases at the beginning of this verse 6 a child is born, a son is given. The same distinction occurs in Paul's writings. Paul says in Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, but he was also God's son. We read about it in, in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And as a son, Jesus Christ was sent because he was always God's son. Nevertheless, he was born of a woman under the law and thus became human. And the Bible never hesitates to, to put the twin truths of full deity and true humanity of Christ together. You can't take one without the other. Jesus Christ is fully man and truly God. And this child is to be born of a virgin. This child is a mighty God. That, that Jesus is the son of God is central to how the gospels portray him. John makes it clear at the end of his gospel that this is precisely why he wrote his gospel. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Matthew, Mark, Luke, also show the key events in Jesus' life being all about his identity as the Son of God. At his baptism and transfiguration, God declares him to be his beloved Son. In the wilderness, the phrase was repeated on the tempter's lips, if you are the Son of God. Another pivot point is Peter's confession in Matthew's Gospel, where he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And at Jesus' trial, he is asked if he is the Son of God. At his death, the the centurion recognized that he is a son of God. And we could go on and on in the New Testament. But the astounding thing about Jesus is that he isn't just God, he's also man. The, the baby born in that first Christmas is God come in the flesh, dwelling among us. Deity joined humanity forever in the person of Jesus Christ. And think about this. In Jesus, for the first time ever, there was a human being living in perfect fellowship with an almighty God. Loving God with all of his heart 
and all his soul and mind and strength, loving his neighbor as himself. He is the first to ever keep and fulfill the law of God perfectly. There's, there's been no other human being able to do this. Adam and Eve were supposed to do this. And think back to the, the first man, Adam, to think of him. And then let's contrast the temptation of Adam in the garden and, and Jesus with Satan. Adam listened to the tempter and he ate the fruit, but Jesus Christ remained utterly faithful to God. He obeyed. And no one had heard such a thing before, a, a faithful human. But faithful can be such a clinical word. Jesus wasn't only faithful, he was madly in love with God. And so it's natural for him to be faithful to him above all else. No other earthly temptation could sway his heart away from complete adoration of the Father. No temptation on this meager earth could sway his eyes to devotion of God. Jesus was wholly committed to love and obedience of his Father. Jesus is fully God with all the capacities of God and yet fully man with all the frailties of humans. And this same child prophesied in Isaiah 7 as Emmanuel, God with us, would be born of a virgin. There's hope for us in Jesus Christ. And yet I recognize this morning that some of you come into worship gathering together hopeless and discouraged and downtrodden. And friend, you should never think that you are hopeless. If you are here and you believe that somehow you have gotten yourself in a situation in life and you, you believe there's no way out, that you're outside of God's power, that the walls are coming down around you, that there's no hope, friend, you need to understand that God made a virgin have a baby. Let that thought rock your mind. You are in no situation that is beyond the power of God to act. All of our troubles, all of our problems and relationships and, and work and health pale in comparison to our plight in sin and that we are under the right judgment of God. And even this, God has found a way to redeem us. He has found a way for us to be saved. He defeated sin and death. And so friends, your issues this morning are no match for our mighty God. And God came for you, friend. He didn't send someone else. There was no proxy. He sent himself. Let that thought wash over you this morning. God came himself in pursuit of you to seek and save the lost in Jesus Christ. And that means he loves you with an incredible love. Something that can easily be forgotten in the busyness and chaos of life, especially in the Christmas season. God loves you with an everlasting love and sent his son to rescue you. And the message you might hear this Christmas season outside is to find a way to save yourself, to find hope, to look for strength within yourself, to just get through. But that's not our message, and that's not the message of the Bible. 
You are not sufficient to save yourself. But praise God because he has come to rescue you in Jesus Christ. God found a way through Jesus. So friend, if you're here this morning and you are looking to save yourself in anything other than the blood of Christ, it's a fruitless pursuit. You will not succeed. You will fail trying to be good enough. And your goodness and your rightness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. God sees you as you truly are, broken, confused, scrambling for help. You need to turn your attention to Jesus this morning and set aside the worries that weigh you down and find rest in him. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There is no mention of walking down the aisle or praying a prayer or signing a card of salvation in scripture. But there's a command to repent of your sin, of trusting yourself, and to believe in Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Paul's words to the Corinthians in chapter 15, his ex post facto argument, as Charles Spurgeon calls it. He says, Paul says, now if Christ was proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Spurgeon says, if Christ be not the son of God, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. And yet, and ye yet are in your sins and all visions of heaven are blasted and withered. The brightness of our hope is quenched forever. That rock on which our trust is built turns out to be nothing better than mere sand if the divinity of Christ be not proved. Verily, if Christ be not God, we are all men the most miserable. To what purpose is the slander and abuse that we have had to endure day after day? To what purpose are our repentance, our sighs, our tears? To what purpose is our faith? To what purpose have our fears and bodings been supplanted by our hope and confidence? To what purpose our joy and our rejoicing if Christ be not the Son of God? Will you put yourselves all down for fools? Can you imagine that God's word has misguided you? That prophets and apostles and martyrs and saints have all leaked together to lead you into a trap and to delude your souls? God forbid that we should think such a thing. Jesus Christ is God. We stake everything on Jesus being the Son of God. Everything. If he is not God, then all that we do here is worthless. My preaching is pointless. Our worship is pointless. Our service, our teaching, our work, all in vain. If Christ is not our mighty God, everything hinges on Jesus Christ. Everything. Christ is God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, the very God of very God, who counted it not robbery to be equal with God. And so I call on you, my non-Christian friends, to turn from your sin of trusting yourself and believe on Jesus Christ. He is worthy of your life's devotion to him. And you're either resting on yourself or else you are resting and declaring that Christ to be the mighty God and resting on him completely. 
And this leads to my second point, mighty. The other half of this title is important because Jesus isn't just God, he's our mighty God. The Hebrew word can also be described of a hero or a mighty man of valor, or even better, a warrior. And that one seems to correlate well with what we know of Jesus in the scriptures. He is our warrior God. He is our wonderful counselor and our warrior God. And the, this picture is painted clearly for us. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did God become man? Jesus was born to wage war for us. He came to fight for you. Christmas is not a sweet little story of quietness and calmness, of peace and tranquility. It's about war. Jesus coming to earth was the first strike at the head of the enemy. It was the battle cry that God is serious towards sin, so serious that he comes himself to wage war against the enemy. Jesus came to do what Adam should have done in the garden, to trample the head of the serpent. Jesus came to rescue his brothers and sisters from the captivity of sin because we could never rescue ourselves. And when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you quickly notice that Jesus is engaged in spiritual conflict everywhere he turns. There's an extreme overflow of demonic activity during his earthly time that's really unprecedented in all of biblical history. And that in every situation, from Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by Satan into the serious situations of demonic seized people, Jesus again and again wins the battle over evil. Jesus is the victor. He binds a strong man and casts him out every time. But Satan doesn't end there. He sees his final goal to have Jesus killed. And so Jesus is wrongfully charged, betrayed, beaten, and nailed to a tree. This is the final confrontation, the final stage of the battle, and the serpent strikes against Jesus. And as he hangs on the cross, it looks like defeat. Every other engagement on earth, there was victory, but here at the cross, darkness covers the earth. There seems to be no way out. Jesus cries out from the cross, why have you forsaken me? It looks like defeat, doesn't it? It looks like failure. The disciples believe that. They're dejected as his body is taken off the cross after his death. But in his death, there's really a final victory. Listen to Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So he's, he's talking about Christmas here in Hebrews 2. The reason why Jesus came to earth to share in flesh and blood, the incarnation, he became man. But why? He continues that through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So friends, why was Jesus born? Why should we celebrate and remember Christmas? It's about the cross more than the manger. And you have to understand that. Christmas is about war against sin and death. And we celebrate the day Jesus was born to die. Jesus, our warrior God, was born for the cross to conquer sin and death. And we sing it in our Christmas songs. Have you noticed that? God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. 
Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. We sing about war. Do you hear the struggle? Because everyone who is not a Christian is under the power of Satan, sin, and death. Christmas is about war. Do you really want Christmas to be significant this, this year for you and your family and your kids? Don't hide it from them, what Christmas is all about. Jesus was born to die for our sins so that we could have life eternal. Jesus is our warrior God who fought for us, laying down his life for us. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you hear the mention of war? He triumphed over the rulers and authorities of sin and death. Friends, Christmas is war. You get the theme, right? They said it enough this morning. Another song, a beautiful Christmas song. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. And it's sung in a minor key, but it's a beautiful, profound song. King of kings, yet born of Mary, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. And then the third verse, rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. Do you hear the hints of war? There's a battle there. Rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way as the light of life descendeth from the realms of endless day that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. This is why Jesus came to earth, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Jesus came to destroy all the works of the devil. And he's coming back. Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven and opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus, our mighty God, our warrior God. And he's coming back to finish off Satan and all his enemies. And I was struck with a question reading a book this week. And the question was, what do you enjoy most about the gospel? And there's really a lot to enjoy. Our guilt drowned in the blood of Christ. Free, unhindered salvation. The future of a new creation. That pain and suffering will be abolished. That death finally defeated. There's so much more we could 
I'm sure, fill the rest of our time reflecting. But the Apostle Paul spoke of a deeper treasure than all of that. Without making those things small, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Through the gospel, the Spirit has opened our eyes to see that not only is Christ true, but Christ is glorious. He is precious and desirable, captivating, satisfying, and delightful. Joy always comes through encountering beauty, and in Christ is found the highest beauty. Paul writes, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is our greatest treasure in the gospel. The treasure of the Father shared with us. And we could never move on from Jesus. The more you stare at Jesus, the more you see that he is glorious. The more you see that is incomparable. He said to us in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one offers what Jesus offers. Some religions offer paradise, some sort of nirvana. There's no Christ there. Some religions offer stuff, people. They don't offer the one who truly gratifies. But in Christianity, Jesus shares with us himself, his very sonship. We are joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. We get what Jesus gets. That should astound us. Sinners who, who still struggle to live like Jesus. We know our sin. God knows our sin, and yet he sees us as he sees his own son. Perfect, holy, just, righteous, all because of Jesus Christ. And no other religion can offer that. No other religion can give you freedom and peace and security. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just one way to heaven. He's the only way. And all of the Christian life and Christian theology must begin and end with Jesus Christ, our Savior, our God. John Calvin writes for us in his Institutes. He says, we see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they are found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings, it's in his kingdom. 
In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. In Jesus Christ, we find all that we need in this life and the life to come. Do you ever wonder when Jesus is going to come back for his bride? There seems to be no obvious indication in the world around us that it's going to happen anytime soon. As the years roll on, the world doesn't seem to be getting any more peaceful or unspoiled. It seems to get worse. But Christian, our confidence doesn't come from looking at the state of the world. It comes from looking at Christ, our ever-faithful God of truth. He has promised And all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So friends, don't be dismayed by this world. Look to Christ. Robert Murray McChain said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself or the world, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. And I'll end with Charles Spurgeon. He says, permit me not to say, I beg and beseech of all you present, as God the Spirit shall help you. Come and put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. Oh, Christians, believe him more than ever. Cast your troubles constantly on him. He is the mighty God. Go to him in all your dilemmas. When the enemy cometh in like a flood, this mighty God shall make a way for your deliverance. Take him to your griefs. This mighty God can alleviate them all. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And we thank you for allowing us to gather this morning to worship your name. And we confess that some of the time it's hard to keep joyful and continue on because our hearts are hurting. And we are weary of this world. We are sin sick and sore. And we know that we are inadequate. We need more. Thank you for giving us what we need in Jesus Christ. In him who is able to supply all the satisfaction our hearts crave. And Jesus, who is able to deal with our sin and make us clean. Who is able to give us hope in our hopelessness. And dispel the shadows with the light of his radiant love. God, we ask that you would use us this week to shine the light of the gospel in our homes. In our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. May you be glorified in our midst. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.